Well, uh, Jonah mentioned it, but our pastor is away this weekend. He is uh, serving a Snohomish Community uh, Church um, up in Canada, actually, and he's doing a marriage conference, and he told me uh, maybe we can have him uh, twist his arm, and he'll come back and preach some of those messages here uh, on, on marriage. But I just wanted to note this. I, I was thinking about that church. You know, that church, Snohomish Community, was a real blessing to Redemption Hill Bible Church during, um, during COVID. I mean, they allowed Joe to go up there to film things um, because didn't have a building at that time, at that point. Um, and Fred Williams, the pastor there, has just been a friend, I, I know, to many uh, here. And so we're just grateful. I want to just, uh, just mention that to you. Um, and as well, of course, we have today before us uh, the Lord's table. And so we look forward to um, just a great morning. But why don't you um, grab your Bibles and turn to John 3. Turn to John 3. Uh, this past year, in the last few weeks, the men, um, we, we picked up again in our Bible study, and we've been doing pillar passages. And lately, we've been kind of skipping across the top of the water of the Gospel of John. And, and, um, and I had the opportunity about a week and a half ago to teach um, out of John 3. And as soon as I taught, uh, Pastor Joe walked up and he says, will you teach us at our church where I'm away? I said, sure. Um, so I want to apologize to some of you men. Um, you've heard some of this. Um, uh, so you have to hear me again, but I won't apologize for having to hear the word of God again, um, which I think um, is a joy and a privilege. Um, and, and, and to that, I, I debated whether I wanted to read this entire section, but then I started thinking to myself, man, I, I mean, I'd rather you guys hear from God than even hear from me this morning. So we're going to read a larger chunk of scripture. And I'm going to read it out loud to you. We're going to read John 3, 1 through 21, so we can grab um, this context and dive into what I think is an incredible uh, conversation. But John 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this is your very word. A conversation recorded again, of your very words. And Lord, I pray, I pray you to open the hearts and minds of those listening this morning, to hear your word, to hear it clearly, that your spirit would work to illuminate this text to our hearts and to our minds and allow its reality to sink in. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past summer, uh, my father-in-law had to go in uh, to a cancer center in Seattle uh, for a very serious chemo treatment. Um, I, I, I remember it was, uh, it was actually kind of strange to me because it started actually on Father's Day. started on a Sunday, this treatment. Uh, my father-in-law was diagnosed just prior to Christmas last year um, with multiple myeloma cancer. And uh, this was going to be the biggest treatment that he'd had uh, yet. And it was going to be a bone marrow transplant bone marrow transplant. It's, a, it's not one where the bone marrow comes from somebody else. It's actually where they take your own bone marrow, extract it, and then put it back in. That's the best explanation I can give to you for it um, as not understanding all the science behind it. Uh, but I remember just leading up to this, uh, to this uh, transplant, he just had to have multiple procedures, multiple tests. I mean, I felt like it was like someone getting ready to go to outer space, you know, like just so many things they had to check. Um, And I remember one of the interesting things about this treatment is that it basically involved erasing his entire immune system. They they were just were going to deplete, by taking the bone marrow out, deplete his uh, immune system. In fact, we went to Seattle that day on uh, Father's Day before everything, or that Saturday night before Father's Day, and just to just, just kind of just to pray and to be with our family because we weren't going to be able to see him for a little bit. He would actually have to quarantine um, because he would eventually, I mean, he'd be susceptible to basically any any sickness, um, anything from polio to whatever the normal flu going around, um, because everything that all his vaccines, everything would be erased, even the ones from childhood. But I, I, I remember that day standing out there in the street in Seattle, we couldn't go inside. And I remember uh, my father-in-law, he told us, he goes, he goes, it's interesting. They keep telling me that I'm going to have a new birthday, that I'm going to have a new birthday come, I guess it would have been Wednesday of that week when they do the, the procedure. Because this, they said the same way that when a baby comes out of the womb and doesn't have all of their immunity uh, that we get over time or, or even um, with vaccines, uh, that they said my father-in-law, who, who is 71, that he would have a new birthday because his immune system would be completely erased and it would be like he was born a second time. And I remember hearing that on the street and immediately my heart went to this text. Because for Christians, we're very familiar with the language of being born again, being born again. It, it's language that, that it's one of those ideas, and we call it in the men's ministry, it's a pillar, a thought that we have as Christians, this, this idea of being born again. I remember as a high school student, I read a book by Chuck Colson. You remember Chuck Colson? I think he was uh, Nixon's hatchet man, I think is what he was called. Uh, during the Watergate scandal, he wrote a book because he got saved in, uh, I think, right prior to prison, and he had a book called Born Again, Born Again. 
even saw this week that there's a, a mega pop artist. She has a song called Born Again. And we use those words, but what do they mean? What do they mean? I mean, I'm sure for someone who's never heard it, that the language can be odd. Born again? Born again? What exactly does that mean? And if you've had that thought, if that thought has crossed your mind, then you're actually in good company. You're in good company this morning because we have uh, in our Bibles a recorded conversation of someone who wanted to know what those words mean. They wanted to know what Jesus was talking about, words that were spoken by Christ. And I want to remind you this morning, Christians didn't come up with that language. We didn't just make it up somehow. It's actually, as you read this morning, as you heard read, it is right here in the scriptures. And it's vitally important, I think, that we understand this and understand specifically what Jesus meant. You think, why? Why would it be important to understand what it means to be born again? Well, I would just tell you, and the text is going to make this clear, that nothing less than eternal life is at stake. Nothing less than eternal life is at stake. Because that's what Jesus says. That's what he says. He says that being born again is intrinsically linked with having eternal life. It is to have Christ. It is in that sense to be born of God through Christ. And I do believe this is an eternally significant conversation, which that was the best title I could give my message this morning an eternally significant conversation that I want us to listen to. And so what I've done this morning for our outline is I've broken up really these three paragraphs um, into these three points, made them conversational for you. You can see them up on, on the screen. The first paragraph, you must be born again. You must be born again. The second is the question, but how? And then the third aspect, believe in Christ and be saved. Believe in Christ and be saved. This is our outline. Let me take you to the first one. You must be born again. We're seeing this in those first eight verses. And starting in the first paragraph, we're brought into a late night scene. We have two main characters, Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. I told the guys on Thursday, my, my former pastor used to always call this Nick at night. Nick at night. And I... I never really wanted to repeat that and continue it, but here we are uh, going. I, I didn't even have a TV growing up. I didn't even, I just would go to friends' houses and, you know, Nickelodeon, Nick at night, but it, that's not of the Lord. Let's move on. Um, but we're brought into this conversation in verse one with Nicodemus. And, and it's clear that Nicodemus from the text is a Pharisee. And, and this is no small detail, right? We, we know that the Pharisees were, were these Highly religious Jewish leaders, about 6,000 of of them. And they were known for their commitment to the Old Testament. And and they were known as teachers in the community. Down in verse 10, in our next point, Jesus will make this statement that, that Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. The teacher. And we don't exactly know what that means, but, it, but it's possible that Nicodemus had a prominent place. He had a prominent place as one of these, these teachers. He's the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus, it says, by night, by night. He comes in the evening, and, 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 and there's all kinds of debate about, about this. I mean, there's one option. Why did he come at night? Well, one is, you know, maybe Nicodemus just came under the cover of night. He didn't want to be exposed uh, for his interest in Christ. 
I mean, it wouldn't have been politically correct for him to be going and learning something from a guy who was never trained the way that the Pharisees were. So maybe that's a reason, maybe another reason he came at night is because that's just when Jesus was available to, to, to speak. I mean, you know, when you read your Bibles, Jesus is a pretty busy guy. He's got a full schedule. But, but so maybe it's possible Nicodemus finds a time in, in the evening. But it's also likely that John includes this detail about night as a kind of a nod to the spiritual reality of all people who live in darkness because of their sin. All people. I mean, this whole light and darkness is something that John uses throughout his gospel. You, you don't have to, you can flip back. I think it'll come on screen. But in the beginning of John, he opens with this language. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Had this light and darkness. Later in John 3, down all the way in verse 19, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's very possible that John includes this detail about Nicodemus coming at night because that's exactly what was going on in Nicodemus's heart. It was true of him. He loved the darkness in that sense. That is the spiritual realm of his own sin. He was living in the darkness of his own sin. And of course, you know this is sadly true of our world today. I mean, it could be true of you this morning. Living in the darkness of your own sin. I mean, we don't have to look further than what we saw yesterday in Israel. The darkness of sin being shown to us through every cell phone, every media outlet, the darkness. Romans 1 says it like this, that the world is, that their foolish hearts were darkened. We understand this to be true, but it's possible that Nicodemus didn't understand that completely. Nicodemus comes, he likely didn't understand his own sin this way, but, but he does seem to know that he's missing something. He, he comes to Jesus for some answers. And it's interesting that in verse 2 of John 3, he, he comes with a respectful attitude, actually. We, we know this because he calls Jesus rabbi. He, he says, rabbi. He, he calls him, the, the word means teacher. I mean, this is a pretty big deal from a guy who's a Pharisee, one of the, the known teachers in, in Israel, uh, you know, who, who was trained, coming to an untrained man like Christ, who wasn't part of their exclusive group, who was clearly a gifted and incredible teacher, Nicodemus comes and calls him rabbi. And he says, rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I mean, presumably Nicodemus had seen Jesus' miracles. He calls them signs here. I mean, the first is back in chapter 2 and in John. What's the first thing he does in John? He turns water into wine. <laughs> a famous miracle. 
And in there, in, in, in chapter 2, when he turned the water into wine, John, commenting on that, calls that the first of his signs. This is the first of Jesus' miracles. So, so maybe Nicodemus heard or had seen this, and now he comes to Christ, and he says, you must have come from God. You're a gifted teacher, and no one can do the things that you do. And he wants some answers. But Jesus' response is kind of interesting, isn't it? Look down at verse 3, John 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, it's like, what are you answering, Jesus? It's kind of how it feels. I mean, Jesus just goes right after the juggler in this sense. He goes right after Nicodemus's heart. He sees beyond, he, he sees beyond the surface, and he goes after the truth that everyone in the world would need and needs. I mean, there isn't a single person on the planet that has ever lived that this isn't true of. Everyone needs to be born again. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. And he, he emphasizes it here by saying, truly, truly. The, the idea is, amen, amen. He wants Nicodemus to know and for you to know this morning that this is vital. This is significant. Just don't miss this. I mean, here is an eternally significant comment and an eternally significant conversation. And we're only three verses in and Jesus drops a bomb on Nicodemus. You got to be born again. You notice that Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. It's right at the end of verse 5. Speaks of the, the kingdom of God. Chu chu, I say to you. Uh, sorry, verse 3, excuse me. Uh, uh, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus is obviously talking about a spiritual kingdom. It's language we see all over, all over our, 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 the, the Gospels. It's not a kingdom of this world. It's a, it's a heavenly kingdom. It's the place of God. And specifically here, I think Jesus is talking about the kingdom of salvation. You know what he's saying to, saying to Nicodemus? He's saying, Nicodemus, you've got to be born into that kingdom. You actually need to be reborn. And you need to be born into the kingdom spiritually. A spiritual kingdom requires spiritual birth. That's why he uses that language. Right? Like we just talked about the babies that were born in our church. Right? They're born physically, but spiritually, to be born into this kingdom, you must be reborn to be part of the kingdom of God. That language of reborn, you probably have a note in your Bible. I have a little note right after the word born again. It drops me down to a footnote, and it just says this or from above. Or from above. The language there, that's exactly what it means. It means to be born from above. Again, spiritual language. You must be born from, a, from above. This is something that must happen to you. It must happen to you. One commentator said it like this, to be born again or born from above means a, a transformation of a person so that he is able to enter another world and adapt to its conditions. To belong to the heavenly kingdom, one must be born into it. Right, when you're physically born, you're given what you need, right, with your body and lungs and all of those things, like those babies born just yesterday morning. You're given what you need to exist in this world and adjust to it. The same is true spiritually when you're born again. But you've got to be transformed. You've got to be changed is the idea. 
in order to enter the kingdom. This birth language that John uses, he uses in other places. I think they're going to come up on the screen, but in 1 John 2, verse 28, he says, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, what? Has been born of him. Born of him. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God, whoever, sorry, loves has been born of God and knows God. Born of God. You must be born from above. Right, but, but Nicodemus here, he clearly needs some answers. He, he, he needs, this is a lot to take in for him. Because we see it in verse 4, what does he do? He comes back with another question. He says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, how should we understand Nicodemus's question here? I mean, on the face of it, we could take it physically or, or materialistically. I mean, he's just thinking of physical birth. That's the only thing that, that Nicodemus could be thinking of. You know, he hasn't made the spiritual connection with Jesus and the analogy of physical birth and spiritual birth. That's one way to look at it. But there's another way to look at this, and it'd be maybe with, with a more spiritual tone. Perhaps Nicodemus did make the connection. I mean, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, but it still for Nicodemus seemed impossible. It still seemed, it puts him back. So, so he repeats back Jesus' thought here with, with the same analogy, saying this, how can this be? How, how can this happen? Is this even possible? I mean, it's possible that Nicodemus could have been even, even been thinking this way. He could have been thinking, wait a second, men, when they're old, they're pretty set in their ways. I mean, I don't know that it's possible that they can change, that, that they can be transformed this way. Is it possible? It's very likely, actually, I think, that Nicodemus is not a dumb guy. He's making the connection here. He's making the spiritual connection. He brings the analogy back to Jesus saying, how can this happen? And even if he understood the metaphor, he doesn't grasp the truth. He doesn't grasp the truth. It was still difficult for him to understand, and I think that's actually why Jesus will go on in the rest of the paragraph. In verses 5 through 8, what does he do? He basically repeats back to Nicodemus what he just told him. But he gives him a little more detail. Look down at it. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the Spirit, he... Uh, 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 that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Of course, Jesus is still talking about the new birth, but he spells it out here for Nicodemus. And he uses language of water, spirit, wind. I mean, some have thought that verse 5, maybe Jesus was referring to the baptism of, uh, of John, who, who we, we, we heard about in, in, in chapter 1, who's, who's presented to us. But I actually think that this whole language of water, spirit, even wind, it, it has a lot more to do with the cleansing work of the Spirit of God who transforms people from the inside out. That is, it's the purifying work of the Spirit 
cleansing us from our sin. Many theologians, and I agree, would say that this here in verses 5 through 8, he is speaking, Jesus is speaking about what theologians call, the re, call regeneration. Regeneration. This is just simply the work of the Spirit when he changes the unbeliever and gives them a new nature, taking their old sin nature, removing that, and putting a new nature within them. And I think this is the transformation Jesus is talking about. And he speaks in terms that Nicodemus would understand. He says, you know about water, you know what its effects are, right? Even ritually. And then he uses this idea of wind. I mean, water was used as a, as a ceremonial cleansing agent, purifying agent throughout. And then he speaks of wind. And he says, wind is something you can't see. But you see its effects. I mean, I, I was telling men, I grew up in a super windy area of Southern California. I mean, it was like Lancaster, California, and Chicago. And that's what you'd see. Like, that was the news. It was so windy. I mean, I remember being a soccer player, and we had to adjust, you know, our kick, to, you know, for the wind <laughs> to move the ball. But everywhere you look where I grew up in the desert of Southern California, all the trees have this effect. Often they put two poles, you know, do their best, and you know, the poles have a bend, you know, because the wind is, is so bad. I can't tell you where the wind came from, though. I mean, I always hear about the Santa Ana winds and, and they would talk about this, but I can see its effects. I don't know how it all works, but I can see its effects. And, and the same is true of the Spirit of God. He, he, he regenerates and he transforms, he purifies, he cleanses, and it is a work that is completely of the Spirit. It happens internally, but we see the effects in the lives of people, don't we? We see its effects. In fact, to this point, I just wouldn't make mention this to you. It should be clear to us, even this morning, that the new birth cannot be earned. It can't be earned. Now, you can't earn the rebirth. I mean, Nicodemus was a professional at this. He's a Pharisee. He was spending their days trying to earn God's favor with all kinds of laws, all kinds of additional ways to obey God. But Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand that this isn't something that you can, you can do in your own strength. The new birth is given by a direct sovereign act of God. John 1, I don't know if I have it on screen for you, but it says in verse 12, it says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You don't become a child of God on your own strength. It's by the will of God. It's not by your will. That's how the Bible speaks of this incredible, mysterious, miraculous work of God. And God must do that work in you. He must do it in you. You must be born from above. In verse 7, Jesus tells Nicodemus, don't marvel at this. Don't marvel at this, Nicodemus. Right? Don't be astonished. Don't be shocked. But it's kind of how Nicodemus responds, and this comes to our second point this morning. You must be born again, secondly, but how? But how? I mean, Nicodemus opens up with another question there in verse 9. He says to him, how can these things be? I mean, I mean Jesus was trying to explain to him the new birth, but it's still not getting through. 
It's likely that his own pharisaical system has blinded him. His own legalistic understanding of how God works has blinded him to the truth of what Jesus is saying. So he asked the question, how can this new birth happen? I mean, he spent his whole life teaching people how to earn God's favor. He goes each and every week, opens the scripture and shows them how to obey the law in order to gain the kingdom. But now in a, in a few sentences, Jesus has just upended that whole idea. I mean, have you ever just been wrong about something your whole life? I mean, it wasn't until this week that I realized, I don't know, this is just coming to my mind. I, was, I saw a truck, bona fide plumbing. And I was like, bona fide? Wait, bona fide? And I started like, that's Latin. And I, my brain was been wrong my whole life. I don't even know what that means now. No, I, it was just shocking. I just, I'm 39 years old. I'm learning about the word bona fide. Here's Nicodemus. I don't know how old he was, but he says, I don't understand how this could be possible. How does the new birth work? And Nicodemus could, could very well be understanding he's been wrong his whole life. Jesus is speaking of an internal transformation, a work of the spirit, when Nicodemus has been teaching people something very different. I mean, it's even possible here that Nicodemus could be pleading for Jesus to know exactly how this works, for direction in his mind. How can this be? How can someone become born again? And, 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 and Jesus' response in verse 10 should tell us that Nicodemus should have understood this. Look at it. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? I mean, Jesus' point is that he should have understood it. When he studied the Old Testament scripture, I mean, that he taught from every Sabbath, I mean, for example, it's very possible that Jesus could have had this in his mind. You know, Nicodemus, haven't you read Ezekiel? Haven't you read Ezekiel 36? And it'll come up on the screen for you. In verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is a parallel text to, to our text, I think, this morning. It's probably why Jesus spoke of the, the water and of the spirit, even back in verse, verse 5. He's asking Nicodemus, how could you have missed this? This has been true for a very, very long time. How can you, a teacher, not understand it? Of course, Jesus recognizes that Nicodemus did miss it. And so he tries to break it down even further. He, he kind of comes down even, he wants to convey it in, in simple terms and he's going to do that in just a second. But he tells him in verse 12, he says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe in the heavenly things? I mean, Nicodemus, I've been trying to tell you about this, this thing called the new birth and you're not getting it. So I'm not even going to give you something further, right? He, I've talked to you about earthly things. I think he's there. He's, he's talking about the, the new birth. He said, I'm not going to give you more deeper truth. I'm not going to explain to you things. You're, you're a teacher and you can't even get the simplest stuff. How can you take the deeper things? And what those deeper things were, we don't know. We don't know what those heavenly things were, but Jesus reminds him in verse 13, you can just see it there. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from the heaven, the son of man. He says, there's heavenly things, and I'm the only one, is what Jesus says. I'm the only one that can reveal them to you. 
I'm the only one who does that. F.F. Bruce said it this way, divine wisdom belongs to Jesus. He has not had to go up to heaven to acquire it, but he has come down from heaven to impart it. He's come to reveal truth. You can't discover it, Nicodemus. It must be revealed to you, and that's what I've come to do. But in answering Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? Look what Jesus does. He's an incredible teacher. Nicodemus already called him rabbi. He brings Nicodemus back to a familiar scene in the Old Testament. Look down, excuse me, in verse 14. He says, it's quick, it's quick here, it's brief, but it's powerful. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I mean, did you catch it? Nicodemus had studied the scripture, I'm sure, often, and, 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 and Jesus here tells him, do you remember what happened with Moses and the people of Israel? wandering in the wilderness, and they begin to get impatient. He brings them back to Numbers 21. Again, it'll come up on your screen. Remember this scene? From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that, the, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus here is making a connection for Nicodemus. It's brief. It's brief, but it looks like this. I'm putting these up here for you so you can see them. Here's the connection. That the people of Israel, they were guilty of sin. They were disobedient, they were grumbling, and they had an unthankful spirit. And God was what? He was punishing them for their sin. They were under his condemnation. I mean, the, the, the snakes were symbolic of sin. I think we understand that. And of course, the object elevated before them was just that emblem of their judgment. Jesus, of course, would be the one that's lifted up. We're going to see that in a second on the cross, foreshadowing it here in the text. Fourthly, they were unable to rescue themselves. We see that. They have to come. They need, they need help. The poison of the serpents was deadly. And there was no antidote for it. Nothing could fix it. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't put committees together. They couldn't put a science group together to figure it out. They, they recognize they have to go to God. And then finally, they were urged to look at the serpent in order to receive life. They have to look at the serpent. You see what Jesus is doing for Nicodemus? He's trying to show him what the new birth is all about. So he tells him, listen, Moses was lifted up. He lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus answers Nicodemus's question in summary, saying it like this. In the same way that God graciously provided new life for the people of Israel who were bitten by the snakes, who had to look up and trust in faith his provision, in the same way he does that, He does it for all men now. He does it for all men now. But how does he do it? How does God do that? Of course, Jesus explains it's going to require the Son of Man to be lifted up. 
again, foreshadowing his own death, a reference to the cross where in John 19, he'll say it is finished. Jesus would be lifted up where he would die, where he'd pay the penalty for all sin. And the connection is simple. The same way the Israelites had to look in faith. Today, people are called to look to Christ in faith and trust Christ in order to be saved. That look has been described as the gaze of faith. New birth comes not by perfect faith, but through the simple gaze of faith. That's what I think Jesus is telling Nicodemus. And when someone does this, when they look to Christ, the promise to them is that they will have new life. It will be eternal life. John 3, 3, 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this brings us to our final thought this morning. Nicodemus asked, but how? Jesus says it this way in summary, believe in Christ and be saved. Believe in Christ and be saved. I mean, this last paragraph, It begins with what is easily the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Is there a more well-known verse than John 3.16? It's a verse you'll see billboards of. It's a verse you'll see plastered to the back of cars. People getting tattoos. John 3.16. And here's my concern this morning. My concern is that our familiarity with this verse, (laughs) even in our culture, it might lessen its incredible power and its truth. Would you read it with me one more time? You probably know it by heart. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You're even trained to say it out loud. A verse that most people have memorized. Martin Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature. It's the gospel in miniature. That's probably why we love it so much. It's probably why we memorize it as children and as adults. It's probably why even when you've been in Christ for any number of years, this one still just kind of rises to the top, doesn't it? I mean, as one author put it, John 3.16 expresses the most important message of the gospel, that salvation is a gift received only by believing God for it. And while we actually don't know if Jesus Jesus is speaking here or if it's just John's commentary, it really doesn't matter. It's the perfect response to Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? How could someone possibly come to be reborn? Well, they must believe in Christ. Belief, of course, is the same thing as faith in this text. It is respond to God in faith. It's always coupled with repentance in the scripture. And Jesus, as Jesus and the apostles would tell them, repent and believe in the gospel. There will always be a turning away from sin when you trust Christ. But you must believe in him. You must trust him in faith. The new birth must be, in that sense, appropriated by an act of faith. That's what that word belief is talking about. It doesn't mean accepting something. Sorry, it, it, it consists, excuse me, of accepting something, not of doing something. It's not something you do. You want to be born again? You got to believe in Christ. You must look to him in faith. You must turn from your sin and repent and be saved. And did you catch how God made all of this possible in John 3, 16? Did you catch that? 
How does God make eternal life possible? Well, it says there, it's only through the love of God in giving his son. For God so loved the world, it was an act of love. It was an act of love. How does God show his love to the world? He gave his only son. Here's a gift. It's my son who's going to die for your sin. I mean, God shows his love to the world by giving his son. It's an unbelievable expression of love. Our God is loving. Our God is gracious. Our God is giving. And I love how one commentator said, he says, God's attitude is not, a, is not that of suspicion or hatred, but of love. He is not seeking an excuse to condemn men, but is rather endeavoring to save them. His purpose in sending Jesus into the world was to show his love and to draw men to himself. I think sometimes, I think sometimes even in our own circles, we get a little heavy sometimes when we talk about God's wrath. We're careful. We're like, oh, I don't want to think we should be talking about God's love so much. We've got God's laugh. And people on the other side are God's wrath. And the people on the other side are going, no, 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 you guys talk about wrath too much and you never talk about God's love. And actually in this text, we have both of them. They're both spoken of. He speaks of perishing and of love. But here, God's attitude is not, is not, he's not, he's not just trying to pounce. He's, his attitude is love. He gives his son F.F. Bruce says the gospel of salvation and life has its source in the love of God. My time is running quick. But hymn writers have tried to speak of this wonder of wonders of God's love. Think about the old hymn, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints' and angels' song. There's more. goes on. How could there be enough ink in the world to write of God's love? And listen, again, my time has run quick, but John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Eternal life. That, that's what you get. That's what you receive when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Eternal life. He's not just speaking about time. It's, it's definitely not less than that. Eternal life is just that. It's eternal but it's also quality of life. It's a new, totally changed quality of life. Everything changes when you get saved. When you're reborn, everything becomes new because God transforms your perspective. He transforms your affections. He transforms your love. So that's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. What's it say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ this morning, praise the Lord, you have new affections. I mean, you probably have friends like me that they got saved. And not, I remember my friend Dom. He's actually going to be here next week. You guys can meet him. Just a guy living on, I mean, he was totally into like bad music. And he, I remember he had a, you know, we used to have stacks of CDs. So when he got saved, he chucked them. So I don't need that stuff anymore. I have new affections. Hey, and you have your own in your own life. Listen, eternal life is held out to you. We're going we're in a moment going to have an opportunity to take communion. But maybe I'll just close with this illustration. I was listening to a songwriter. His name's Steph McLeod. He's a worship leader. He's from 
I believe it's Scotland. He's a Scottish worship leader. I was listening to his testimony a while back, and he said that he was homeless. He was begging. At the bottom of his rope, he was living on the rainy streets and under the gray clouds of Scotland. And he said that at some point, he, someone shared Christ with him. He understood what Nicodemus doesn't understand at this point, the gospel. And he says that he went home that night with something he had never had. And he said the two things were gratitude and hope. Gratitude and hope. And he says it jokingly. He says, it's not like the next day I woke up and God was like, here's a new wife and here's a Ferrari. He says, it's not what God gave him. But he said he woke up and he started to notice something new. People were smiling at him. He said he'd never remembered a time when people were smiling. And then he said that when he realized, he realized how much it rains in Scotland. He said, but he noticed the clouds and the rain, they, they weren't dour and, and they weren't gray anymore. And he used this Scottish word, drihik. They weren't drihik anymore. They weren't dull or gloomy. He said, the clouds and the rain, he says, were sure pretty that morning. He went on, he says, it was sure pretty. And it was silver and lilac and purple. And he says, everything was gleaming. He went on to write a song called Light Beams. And he says, he says, I can see the light beams falling on me. I can see the light beams falling on me. I can see the light beams falling on me. And everything glows. Everything glows. He says, I'm alive. I'm free. I feel the fire of love and I breathe. I mean, here's a guy who's got new affections. He's got eternal life. That's what he had. He's got eternal life. And listen, this morning, Jesus holds that out to you. I ask you this question. Do you have that this morning? Maybe you walked in this morning thinking that, that you understood this. Maybe now the Spirit of God has convicted you. Listen, God does not want you to perish. That's what John 3.16 says. But listen, apart from Christ, you will. You stand condemned already is actually what the text will go on to say in verse 18. Listen, if that's you, then this morning, come to Christ. Come to Christ. He holds out to you eternal life. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You must be born again. How? It's by believing in Christ to be saved. I pray that you would do that and do that soon. I'm going to call the men forward. We've got to get to communion this morning. Thank you for being patient under uh, the word of God. Lord Jesus, it is sweet to remember the death that you bore for our sin. That you were sent for that very purpose, that we would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, I pray even what we heard this morning in this conversation remind us of the gospel today, even as the, the cup and the bread have done. Lord, now as we sing this final song, we remember Christ, that there's no one like him. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.